Hello, world, and welcome to Amanda Plus One. It is your host, Amanda, and my plus one today and her book is the reason why I am 100% debt-free. That's right. Yaneli Espinal is a Dominican-American financial expert and author from Brooklyn based in Miami. So today we are here in Miami, kicking about money, about bread, the cheese, the bacon, the moolah, you know? Bam. Hi, Yaneli. Hi. Oh, my gosh. We've been talking about doing this for a minute. I know. And I'm so happy to be here, girl. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy for you. Being that free is huge. Like, that moment is something that you're never going to freaking forget. Cheers never. to that. Cheers. <laughs> so, Yaneli, um, yes. got to take a Get sip on your sip. cheers. <laughs> I, in, in preparing for this conversation with you, yeah. I started talking to everyone about money. My friends, my coworkers, my family, my Instagram followers. Yes. And the one main thing that came up in every conversation was, but I never had financial education. I was never taught that in school. I don't nice. know what to do. And that really affected me in adulthood. Yep. And I hear you are doing amazing work yeah. in changing that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay. So I started working in financial literacy education in 2018. And that was just primarily focusing on like, all right, the teachers, they are just like you and me they're adults who never got financial education when they were in school and yet they're in a school teaching and being told hey listen now we're going to start teaching about money so you're going to be the one to teach it and they're like me but but i never got taught so how you want me to teach something that i don't know myself so we realized the gap is there's this generational shift where like at some point one of the generations is going to have to learn it themselves so they could begin to teach it so the the start of the work was really like all right we have to train teachers so the organization i started working with is called uh, ngpf next gen personal finance they focus on training the teachers and giving them the necessary like workshops, the like a full day of professional development, um, you know, to giving them the materials, the lessons, the activities, the homework assignments, the tests, the answer keys, everything so that you can literally have it fresh out the box, the curriculum to teach this class. Um, and so I started just with training the teachers and then we're like, OK, well, this is great if the teachers feel good about it, but then they're not really going to teach it if the school doesn't require them to do it. So some stu some teachers will tell us like, oh, yeah, I love this class. I love teaching it. But then my school doesn't make me teach it is there's an elective option and a lot of kids don't want to do it. So it ends up not being taught. So we were like, all right. So part one, step one was the teachers. But step two is now they need to be in schools that require them to teach it. And so how do you get a school to require something? Usually the school's not going to do it if the district doesn't make it do it. And the district ain't going to do it if the state doesn't make them do it. So we realized very quickly it's got to be from the state down. And a lot of people don't realize that within education, within the education system, the federal government has tiny little bit of limited control over education because education is a local issue so like if you if you're in new york you learn something if you live in massachusetts you learned completely something else in high school because you, you're taking whatever classes the state decided you got to take and so the requirements look different in every state which means we got to go state by state by state by state so when i started in 2018 there were eight states that had a required financial literacy class and then now, or not even, I think there were five in 2018. And then when COVID started, a couple more, so it was like eight. And then now, as of like December of 2023, there were 25 states. And we're this close. We already started 2024 on a good start because there's 10 states that have already created bills that they're proposing to require it in 10 more states. So mm. 
if we can do that, like we are just every year getting a little bit closer to the 50 states. But yeah, I mean, I've personally been involved in legislation that was passed in Florida, in Indiana, in um, a few different states in uh, in uh, Georgia, in Massachusetts, like in Connecticut. Like there's so many states where I feel like I knew from the beginning the process that was going on. And I've learned so much like about politics and how how do you change the freaking system? How do you change the laws so that people can't say like, oh, we didn't know or we weren't required to? Like, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. So, ooh, but yeah, we're, we're at 25 states right now that require it. Wow, half, halfway through. Half the country. And the crazy thing is a lot of people think like, oh no, but the, but I've, I used to take it, like I took an economics class or like a business class, but that's not personal finance. Like when I talk about personal finance class, I'm talking about your money. When you get your paycheck, what do you do with your money? Not mm. like global economic systems, not like socialism versus a free market economy. Like we're not talking about that. Like we're talking about how do you open an investment account and how do you improve your credit score and how do you, you know, like you figure out what insurance policies you might need. Like it, it's not about global trade or even national or international economics, that stuff. I can't believe that we teach students that. We teach economics first before we even teach them about their own money. So the movement and the push is really, let's stop skipping the personal financial literacy first. Let's do that first. And then, of course, you can teach them all the economics that you want. Yeah, change starts with you. Yeah. And so this is this is what I consider, like, good work. This is the yes, good yes. work, and it's important work. And <laughs> yes. how, how did you get into it? When was the time in your life when you said, wait, money is not only important to me. Money is important to my family. It's important to my neighbors. It's important yep. to this stranger. It's important to everyone. Like, when, when did it click for you, and when did you decide, you know what, I'm going to go and change yeah. essentially the world? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> America, at least. We'll start, yeah, with, we'll start with America. Exactly. We'll change, start with America. How, how, yeah. When, when did you decide I'm going to go change America with what I do? Oh, man. Well, so like my career, I started as a teacher. So when as soon as I graduated college, it was like right after the crash 2008. I didn't really, it was not super easy to find a job. And I was like, I don't know what I really want to do. But in my senior year in college, I took a class called the History of African-American Education in the United States. And that's when I learned about how crazy the racial education gap is. Like if you're black and brown, especially a black or brown boy in this country, you are so much less likely to get a high quality education, public school education specifically. Right. Because, I mean, if we're talking about private education, if your parents have money for that, you're probably all right. But for public school education is such a gamble. And specifically within racial disparities with access to education, quality schools, quality curriculum, really good quality teachers. So then that like put fire under me. I was like, you know, I went to all public schools my whole life my and I felt lucky I got really good teachers and I took all the AP classes like I was that nerdy kid so then I was like all right if I want to make a difference I feel like I have to go and teach students and I have to show them that hey I sat in those chairs that you're sitting in right now in that desk and if I can you know graduate and come here and do this back in my community like hopefully that's inspiration for you but when I went back to start teaching I'm like hold up nothing has changed the same freaking lessons that I was doing when I was in third grade is the same lessons that that I was teaching to my students when I was a, a freaking adult like so I'm like this curriculum schools they don't change what they're teaching and that was like a red flag like I was like yo this is never going to improve we're never going to modernize and keep up with the changing times if we keep teaching the same outdated stuff so and especially because like technology look at how we use money today like my niece one time I remember she was like yeah I want an iPhone so bad 
And then I was like, maybe when I was your age, I was playing with Barbies. Like I was playing with, like I was playing with toys and Play-Doh and making puzzles and drawing little flowers in my book. Like why, why do you need a phone? And she's like, cause then I could buy anything I want, Thea. Oh my God. Tap. Tap, tap, tap that phone, right? Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Google Pay. These kids see technology is like, that's money now. So like in her mind, she decided like, oh, my mom uses her phone to buy everything. So if I got a phone, I could buy anything I want. And so I just realized like, damn, we are not talking to kids about money. They are making their own ideas about what money is and how money works from such an early age. And I said, if I just keep teaching and I don't try to change what's teach what's being taught, what the curriculum actually includes, then it's not, the problems are going to get solved. So that's when I decided, okay, I have to step away from the classroom. Like I have to move away from just teaching and find out how can I get involved in what's, what is selected to be taught? What are the curriculum that is, what curriculums are going to be chosen? What, you know, specific standards are selected? What are the lessons? Um, and then, you know, I didn't know how to do that, especially cause I didn't know anything about money or finances and stuff. I was teaching myself just reading books and listening to podcasts. Um, and so that's why I just started doing nonprofit work. I just started finding organizations that were trying to help the teachers learn and pushing into schools and supporting in that way. And that's when I realized like, okay, if I do this for a little while, I can establish myself as a financial education professional first. And once you have that respect, then you can start to see like, all right, how am I, shake, how am I gonna shake things up? Like, where do I have to go to actually create change? Um, but luckily for me, I'm in an organization where uh, there's a, a 501c3, so it's nonprofit. So the teachers can get the training for free. They get the curriculum for free. Uh, but then there's an affiliated organization that was created in 2021 that actually does the advocacy work. So that's the organization that will go and take meetings with lawmakers, like whether that's senators in the House Committee or senators in the Senate Committee of Education or representatives in the House Committee of Education and sit down with them and say, hey, listen, we have data to show you about why you need to pass a law that requires financial literacy. Can we have a meeting where I can show you the data, explain this to you, and then help you figure out how to do it? Because I know how other states have done it. I was a part of that. And then you start to kind of change people's minds little by little and create you know, like actually create a whole like coalition of, of people to support. Because at the end of the day, if your bill doesn't get votes, it's never going to have a chance to become a law. Mm -hmm. So you have to get a lot of people to agree and to support the idea. So that's kind of how, it, how I started with it. Tell me what are some of the dangers of not knowing about money and not having any financial education and not learning this in school mm -hmm. and, you know, being a kid in America and then suddenly you're about to be 30 yeah what what is what are some of the things that can come from Ooh. lack of financial education i mean i'm gonna say the scariest one is that you can be taken advantage of that's the scariest the worst thing is that somebody else will come and say oh you don't know how to do this don't worry i got you I will do your bookkeeping, your accounting, especially if you're like a creative professional or if you're, like, if you're like in Hollywood, there's so many actors or even athletes that have been robbed. When I tell you just played, scammed, bamboozled because they hired a money manager or accountant, a, a bookkeeper, a person who's going to handle the money. And then they don't even know how much they make or like how much they're paying in, 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 in fees or taxes or commissions, or they don't, they don't really know that. Oh no, my money manager talks to my money person. They're doing it. And mind you, the money person is taking your money, literally swiping or, you know, not filing your taxes properly, not doing stuff the correct way. So when you don't know anything about your own money, you're at the mercy of trusting whatever other people say because you don't know. Mm -hmm. So you got to just get the basics so that when somebody's telling you something sketchy, you can be like, mm -hmm. that I know the basics and that don't sound right to me. 
And also, you just know what type of questions to ask someone. So I'm a financial educator, right? And I even have a master's in education. I can, I'm certified to teach, right? But I'm not financially certified to give advice to an individual. So if you want a financial advisor, you have to ask for credentials. Do you, are you certified as a financial advisor? That's a CFA, right? Certified financial advisor. That person has taken exams and they are credentialed to actually tell you, hey, this is what you should put, this is where you should invest your money. These are investments that you should buy. And the tricky thing is those types of people, they don't work for free. They take a percentage. So if they're managing your wealth and they're advising you on what to invest in, you got to ask them questions. Okay, so what? how do you make money? Mm-hmm. You how know? much am I paying you? How much, how much am I paying you? Cost? And where does that money come from? Like, So to me, that's the biggest danger is not having a clue, trusting and relying on other people who may not have the right intentions and not knowing how to find the type of professionals that are licensed or certified to actually do the work correctly. Everybody and their mama is a financial coach on Instagram and TikTok nowadays. Everybody and their mama is a credit repair specialist. Like, do they have the right credentials? Because a lot of scammers out here, because money makes people greedy. Money makes people crazy, right? They'll be willing to do sketchy stuff if they think that there's going to be more money in it for them. Uh, but then in terms of, like, the basic things, right? Like, if it's not that scary element, like, you, you're not going to be able to function just month to month, week to week. Like, you got to be able to have money left after you pay your bills. A little bit of money left after you. If you, if you can't figure it out, you need to figure out, okay, do I need to make more money? Do I need to have a side job, a side hustle, or do I need to negotiate for more pay? You, In order to actually make those choices about where you need to be and what you need to do, you have to be able to analyze financial data. That means you got to look at your cash flow, what's coming in, what's going out, and if is it enough to cover my necessities? If it's not, I got to make a decision about how I'm going to fix that problem, and it might be temporarily going into debt, and if it is, okay, what interest rate is that debt? Is that is that wise, right? It's, there's so much, like, critical thinking and analysis and if you're not practicing that with money and learning that then you're not going to be able to feel confident in that so I feel like the schools have to teach it because that's the only way you're going to start early enough practicing it just like your math just like you know just like you're reading your writing skills like you, you start practicing early enough it just becomes second nature it's not something that you have to really you know work super hard to try to get your brain to wrap your mind around these concepts mm-hmm. so that's why I think yeah that's that's the risk of not knowing you were once a young Dominican girl in Brooklyn. Hot mess. <laughs> I was once a young hot mess. <laughs> Let's be real. With no, not with none of the knowledge that you have now on money. Yeah, you have so much knowledge, and I know that because I read your book, and I I was almost in tears yes. because of how much I learned because of how good it was, and you got down to like the very the basics. Yeah. So, can you share with everyone some of the money troubles that you ran into before you became a, yeah. a financial educator, and you know so well-versed on money yeah i mean long story short i took my little butt to um the tent that they had set up on my college campus and signed up for a credit card (laughs) that was the first mistake Mm -mm. um and and that's not to say credit cards are a mistake i use credit cards like all the time and i think they offered you a t-shirt for that credit card they offered a free t-shirt okay so it was basically like uh, you know, you the incentive. You know, you come over here, you sign this application, you get a free T-shirt. I was thinking, oh, it's like a raffle. Like I'm about to win something. They what they didn't explain is that you're putting your your all of your personal details on this application because they're gonna run your credit. <laughs> they're gonna check your credit score. If you don't have one, you know, you may or may not get approved. 
but you're going to have a, a line of credit in your name. You're literally going to borrow money from the bank and promise them that you're going to pay it back. And if you don't pay it back within the time frame, which is usually like 30, 45 days, if you don't pay it back within that time, they start adding interest. What the heck did I know about what the hell's interest and interest fees and how they accrue, thing. compounding interest, what the hell? Nothing. nothing. So I... Without understanding anything about how a credit card works, I signed up. Two weeks later, I got that little red and white plastic credit card. So you already know what bank it was. Mm -hmm. The red and white plastic credit card was in my mailbox on my campus. And I used that credit card to buy everything. I bought Uggs. I bought, um, you know, a new laptop. I bought a purse. I bought whatever. Anything that I want. I was like, boop, 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 credit card on everything. And some things I needed, like I needed textbooks for my classes. I needed to pay for the laptop. My mom and dad did not have money. Like my family... I grew up very poor. We didn't have money for them to buy me textbooks or a laptop. So I, I, there were things where I know it was justified for me to have a credit card so I could pay for those things and, and pay it back little by little. But I was OD. I was like, I was doing the most, too extra. Buying clothes, shoes, makeup, hanging out, parties, birthday party, anything was, yeah, I could go, I could go. And all on my credit card without thinking, okay, do I have a plan though so that I could pay this back so I'm not just racking up debt and having no idea how the hell I'm supposed to pay this back. So um, it got... At first, it was like one, two credit cards. Then by my senior year in college, it was four different credit cards. Mm -hmm. All of them except for one was maxed out. And my debt was almost $20,000. And I was one of those lucky-ass kids that did not have to borrow money for student loans because I got a full scholarship. So everybody in my family thought that I graduated with no debt, like no debt, because I didn't have any student loans. So they were like, oh, she has her scholarship. She's good. She's going to graduate. She doesn't owe any money. And I was over here hiding this little secret of $20,000 of credit card debt that they didn't know that I had. So it was a little bit embarrassing. Like, I definitely had a little bit of shame with that. But the, the hardest part was, like, I finally sat down and looked at all the numbers, added up all the credit card bills, and I was just crying. Like, I just remember the tears just kept coming. I was sitting in my room going, what the hell? How did I let it get so bad? Like, how did I really not keep track? How did I really just let myself dig myself into this hole? And how the heck am I going to get out of it? Because my salary as a teacher was like $40,500 a year and I owe $20,000. So half of my annual income, and not matter of fact, no, more than half because that was before taxes. So half of my check every month is just going to go straight to these credit cards. And that's when I started to get frustrated. And, I was and this like, was the end of Ugh. your college career. Like, this is when your life is supposed to start. Like, you're done with college. And you're starting your, quote-unquote, adult life with 20K. Yeah. And that's low. Like when people, when I yeah. talk to people, a lot of my friends go like, girl, well, mm -hmm. I had a credit card with like 9,000, 10,000. And then I had $80,000 of student loans or I had 60,000 student loans, 30,000 student loans, 110,000 student loans. So I recognize that I'm very privileged in the fact that I got a scholarship to college and I avoided the student loan debt. I did take one little student loan because I, I studied abroad and the scholarship only covered the first 10,000. The program was like 16 or $17,000. So I took like six or 7,000 in a student loan. But that's not like, that's not a lot of debt compared to what a lot of people are experiencing when it comes to college um but credit card debt to me is some of the worst mm. because the interest rates on those credit cards you know student loan interest rate might be like four percent five percent maybe six point two five percent but a credit card you will never find a credit card that charges you a single digit interest rate you will it doesn't exist mm. like credit cards are automatically off the bat double digits 12 13 15 17 22 29 percent so it's like if you don't get serious about paying it back, they just keep you in a chokehold. Like you're just always, you know, paying more and more and more with the interest. So for me, it was so frustrating. I went online and I just started looking up, you know, information. And I walked into a Dwayne Reed one day 
and they were like magazines and books, like self-help books and things. And one of them was women and money. And I was just like, I, this is crazy. Like what kind of sign from the heavens? Like the clouds were parting. I was like, ah, read this book because I was crying literally two, three days before I went to the read to buy random stuff. I was crying about credit card debt. And then there's this book, women and money. Like it was so weird how things happen like that. But I picked up the book and I paid $9 for that book. And Dwayne Reed, it was the best $9 I've ever spent in my life. Cause she taught me how to pay off the credit card debt by creating a debt payoff plan. Um, she taught me just, you know, how to manage the credit, how to understand the, the factors of your credit score, like what gives you points and what hurts you so that you could play the game, you know, mm -hmm. and then savings accounts, how to get higher interest rates on savings. Um, she taught me just basic investing, like how to know, like what investments are not too risky that you might lose all your money and which ones are comfortable. Um, just stuff that like nobody ever talked to me about this. Exactly. Nobody. Exactly. And something that I loved about your book was that at the very end, what I learned about credit card debt is that if you want to pay that off, everything counts. Yes. You, you had, there was this scene where you were on the train heading home after work, I think, and you bought a snack and then you realized that every day you were buying a snack, but then you had snacks at home, which was 30 minutes away from where you were going. <laughs> and, and so you had to cut yourself off from mm -hmm. buying snacks. Like, to pay your debt, you everything counts. Yep. It's not like, oh, well, that's just $15, so it doesn't matter. I have to worry about the stuff that costs $100 or $500. No. Yeah. It's the spending. Yep. It's the actual spending. You know what I would say to that? That is so true, because nowadays, I think that there's, like, some controversy around telling people, like, you can't spend no money. You got to be super frugal. You got to cut everything. You can't even see the inside of a restaurant unless you're working there. Like, we're not, we not on that tip. We're not. But at the same time... I've learned that everything is relative to how much you make because it's a percentage. So when, when you make profits investing, you never hear anybody saying, oh, yeah, I made one hundred and fifty dollars investing in the stock market. That That's not that's not what is that? That's not no one says that. Instead, they say I made a 15 percent return. I made a hundred percent, 150 percent return. My return, my 24 percent return is what I got last year for my performance of my investments. Percentage return is how you talk about growing money. So why don't we do that when we talk about how much we're spending too? Mm. So we don't. We talk about dollar amounts. Oh, it was only $15. But what percentage of your paycheck is that $15? Because if you only made $150 this week working at the 99 cent store and you spent 15 of it, that's one tenth. That's 10% of your income. So do you really feel comfortable dropping 10%? One tenth of what you just made is gone like that. So now you only have 90% left of all the money you work for. And when you're a teenager or when you're in college, you don't make a lot of money. Like you're, you know, you you get odd jobs or you make minimum wage and stuff. So you have to be extra careful with the $5 here, $15 there, $20 over there because it's a higher piece of what you make since you don't make that much. Now, once you're making more, if you start making six figures, multiple six figures, a $15 purchase is a tiny percentage of what you make. So it doesn't affect you as much. And that's why you can afford to go be a little more luxurious and buy a few things that are not necessary. But because you have the income to justify that little percentage spending. So I think people just need to pay attention to that. Like when talk about numbers in dollar amounts, when you talk about money, talk about the percentage. Like what, when you said, Oh, I only spent $300 on groceries, but what percentage of your income is that? Because if it's 40% of your income, 
we need to cut that grocery budget. You can't be spending 40% of your income on food every month. And then throwing out them veggies that you didn't eat. And then you didn't even eat the spinach. So just be like, be serious about what, you know, what percentages make sense. For me, I try to be realistic and like set percentage rules for myself. Like, can I make sure that I only spend 30% or less of my income on housing? If I have to go higher than that, like it better be something that I love and that's like, or if I'm in a high cost of living city, let me like think about getting a roommate or sharing with somebody or moving to a less expensive place to live. Like these are all things you got to consider when you look at the percentage, it helps you really see like, yo, that's way too big of a chunk. That's too much of my income. I'm playing. And you know, you can make those rules yourself, you know, like people say, oh, save 10% or invest 20%. But at the end of the day, you make your rules. If you want to save 5% to start, do it and work your way up. But Ultimately, you do need to have, I would say, percentage-based rules because the dollar amount of money you're going to make every month is going to change as you get older, as you get more, you know, seasoned in your profession, in your career, as you just become more of a higher earning potential uh, person. So you have to pay attention to those percentages. Um, I was looking for, here it is. This blue my mind it it is so basic maybe to uh some of y'all out there but not many because clearly we're talking about how there isn't enough financial education out there right but this is when you were talking about the anti-budget budget because i i don't want to not go to the restaurants <laughs> you know i don't want to not buy the shoes i don't want to i don't want to limit myself yeah. you know and yeah. I feel like I might have found a balance between um, planning for the future and, you know. Living in that present. And, and I might and die enjoying, tomorrow. Yes, and enjoying the tomorrow. present moment at the same time. It's about balance, yes. So then you did this anti-budget and you said, here's a sample budget for a monthly income of 4000 with needs totaling 3120 or 78% of earnings. Percent. I was shook. You said, she said... <laughs> $320 for this is how she's breaking down this budget. This person is making every month $4,000 and all of their expenses add up to $3,120. So we're going with $320 for emergency saving funds. Immediately off the top. 8% of income. $400 for Roth IRA investment account. 10% of your income. $1,300 for rent. That's 32.5% of the income. $260 for utility bills and internet, 6.5% of income. $80 for your cell phone bill, 2% of income. $320 for food, that's 8% of income. This is when I started to see why percentage matter rather than the dollars. $190 for student loan debt, that's 4.7% of income. And then $250 for your car payment. Cause we in the car now. Like we got a car. It's all right. You could be you could be making a little bit of a little no. bit of money and be in a little bit of debt and still get your get around. Yes. Like you said, by state by state, things are different. You could walk in New York. Walking in Miami is not as not easy. It's <laughs> not that easy. Um, so that leaves $880 for absolutely anything mm -hmm. that this person wants. That shook me because I'm like, okay, so if I'm making that a month, I can I can have $880 left and I've already invested. Saved. I've already saved. Pa made payments towards your debt. I paid my rent. Paid your bills. Bought your food. You've literally handled everything that needed to get handled. So now that extra money, there's no rules. You can do whatever you want. You want the shoes? You want to go to the restaurant? You got $880 to make it happen. 
And at the end of the day, somebody might say, oh, that's not enough for me, though. I need more than that in the month. Okay, well, then you need to increase your income. So if you increase your income, that amount will go up. So at the end of the day, I always feel like a lot of people, they focus so much on like the the restrictive part of budgeting. Like, oh, I got to cut down on this. I got to cut my budget. I got to cut this. Actually, what we need to really focus on is how to increase the total amount that we're putting in to start the budget. Because if we do that, then you don't have to limit and restrict and cut here and cut and trim there. You can actually give yourself a little bit more generously. But obviously, it's hard. Like, right now, there's job cuts like crazy. You know, there's the economy affects things. Like, when COVID happened, so many people lost their job. It wasn't even their choice. So, Ultimately, it's not always on you, but as much as possible, if it's in your control to hustle, to learn new skills, to, you know, if you're a photographer and you don't know how to edit photography, fine, learn for, don't just learn how to take good pictures, learn how to edit them too. Now you can charge more, you know, like all of these things, like if you pair up your skills with other skills that can make you even better at what you do, then you can increase what you make. So at the end of the day, I think the younger you are, the less you have to focus on like, you know how much you're profiting when you invest or like how much you're cutting off of your budget but focus more on how much you're increasing your earning potential what skills are you learning every week every month every year so that you can charge more for your work because at the end of the day if you the more you bring in the more you enjoy and the more you can spend so it's all relative like at the end of the day and, and that pushed me to like okay don't just see myself as somebody who works in education who's a teacher what else can I do to bring in money I can be a speaker I can be a writer I can be a content creator I can be a tutor I can teach courses online I can like there's so much we can do like it's limitless like the options right but so many times we're in our own heads and we limit ourselves about like well but I only make $65,000 a year that's all I make that's all I can do come on let's get creative <laughs> let's get creative yeah well <laughs> tell us how you paid your twenty thousand dollar debt yeah. and how much you were making and how long it took yeah. you so that you was... got creative on paying that debt i yes, from what girl. i read and and i was also following your journey yeah for all these years i remember when you were threading your own eyebrows yep i like, still do that on youtube I still, do my, girl, I still thread my own eyebrows <laughs> to not pay yeah well now it's not to not pay to but pay. now it's because it's such a habit and i already know how to do it yeah no but i mean when before, i started threading girl yeah. because i was a baroque i was mm -hmm. like yeah no we don't got money for that i can't pay eight twelve dollars to go thread i'm gonna have to teach i'm gonna have to teach myself how to do this without ripping my shits off my face <laughs> And like, that's how it started. So I think necessity forces you to get creative and innovative. Yeah. So um, you weren't doing read. You found this women and money magazine. Yeah, it so changed the book. your life. Yes. And then how did you start the journey to pay this? Yes. Debt? Okay. So in that book, she has a debt uh, repayment plan. It's like nine month uh, strategy that she says, like anybody who has debt right now, this is a nine month plan that I re recommend that you get on. Um, and so I did that twice through. So it was 18 months, the process for me. I basically calculated, okay, and you can, anybody who has debt, if you have credit card debt, if you have student loan debt, any type of debt, a car payment, a mortgage, there are free debt calculators online. You just got to Google that. It's just go on Google, whatever web search browser you use, type in debt calculator, debt repayment calculator. So the, the calculator is going to ask you how much debt do you have? What interest rate is it growing at? And how much can you afford to put towards that debt every single month? Then it'll spit out based on these numbers that you told me, you're going to have to make a payment. If you make this much payment, if you if you take that amount that you put in and pay that every month, it's going to take you 27 months or it's going to take you 97 months, right? It'll give you a specific amount of time. Now, you get to play with the numbers. Okay, but what if I add another $150 every month? What if I cancel my Netflix and add another $20? Like, what if I, what can I do to find extra money to throw at this debt? 
and it will lower the amount of time that you're in debt. The more money you put towards it, the less time you spend in debt. And the reason that matters is because the interest is accruing annually. So if you could cut a year off of paying the debt, you will literally save yourself whatever the credit card interest is charging you on an annual basis. If that credit card is charging you 26% interest, you just saved yourself 26% of interest on that debt by cutting off one year. So think of it like I'm not just cutting the time. I'm also cutting how much money I'm giving them. Like I'm keeping my own money instead of paying it in fees. And fees to me is literally taking your money out of your wallet and throwing it in the toilet and flushing the toilet. That's what you do when you pay fees because fees literally do nothing. There's no service in that is being exchanged for the fee. So when, you're, when you think about how credit card companies work, they make money for a service, which is that when you swipe your credit card, they're allowing you to pay this merchant, this retailer, without having to use cash. So that's a great valuable service. That's why they charge the merchant the merchant fees. The merchants pay 2%, 3% fees to process that Visa, that MasterCard, that Amex, right? But then... If you're the one that also has to pay them an extra 20%, 30% of interest, like what is that extra fee for? So to me, it's like they're already making fees from charging retailers and, and merchants. They're just greedy. So they charge all this extra. So I knew, okay, I have to find a way to not be paying them all that interest. So I just used that debt repayment calculator and I started finagling the numbers. Like I was like, all right, well, what if I... If I change, I leave the interest rate is not going to change. So I left the interest rate. Okay. But what if I put, you know, 800? Okay. What if I put 900 a month? What if I put a thousand a month? And I kept doing it until I got to 18 months and the 18 month timeline will require me to put a thousand two hundred dollars every month. So that meant $600 every two weeks immediately, which I got paid every two weeks. So every check $600 right away goes straight to the credit card companies. And I did that for 18 months and then my the last month, the 18th month, I logged in and paid off the last like 650 something dollars. And that was and I was debt free. That was October of 2015. So for me, it was like, all right, how the hell am I going to free up a thousand two hundred dollars every month to give away to this credit card company? Mm -hmm. Honestly, it was me repaying what I had borrowed, but also all the interest that had accrued for all those years. So I had, that's where I had to get creative. I had to start threading my own eyebrows. I had to stop like eating out of restaurants. Brunch was a thing. In my 20s, I was going to brunch all the time. I had to cut that. I was like, all right, maybe one brunch a month. And when my friends wanted to hang out, oh, we going bowling. You want to come through? We're going to the movies. I would be like, no, but y'all could come to my apartment after y'all done bowling and we could hang out here and chill. Because I knew that if I just keep living the same lifestyle, if I keep saying yes, 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 and putting everything on the credit cards, I'm never going to get out of the situation. So, you know, if you want to change something, you have to change something. <laughs> nothing changes when nothing changes. So I was like, all right, I have to change. So I just started uh, making my own lunch. I packed all my food. I started doing meal preps and I would post them on Instagram. Miss be helpful meal preps. Like I would just make it a thing. Like if I'm sharing it and there's more people involved, I'm more likely to like be accountable and stick to it. So I started being more public with started sharing stuff on Instagram and YouTube. Being like this is what I'm doing. This is how I save money on meal prep. This is how I save money on my beauty routine. I do my own eyebrows. I do this. I do that. And more people started sharing like, oh, me too. This is what I do to save. This is what I do. And so you realize like you're not alone. There's mm. other people out there that are trying to get out of debt and that are in this journey too. You mentioned in um, your book that you even change your feed. Yes. Like the, the content yes. that you were intaking Detox. on your Instagram. And yes. To me, that's the most important thing because 
you are what you eat, right? And people don't realize that you're consuming things, not just in your stomach, but in your mind every single day, what you see, what you hear, you know, music that you listen to, videos that you watch. This is all consumption. You don't just consume food. You consume content and you consume so much that is out of your control. Like when I walk outside, I can't control what I hear. If whatever, if there's a fight right here, if there's a car, if there's a an airplane going about, I'm going to hear it. So how can I say, no, I'm going to control what I hear. I'm going to control what I listen to, what I see. You have to curate. So you have to have headphones listening to podcasts. You have to, you know, go on your feed and eliminate anybody who posts crap that's not productive or that's not helping. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's not inspirational, not ambitious. Anybody who's not adding value to you, unfollow, unfollow, mute, 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 block, 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 whatever you got to do so that when you're on there, everything that you see is aligned with where you're going and where you want to be and that goes for everything y'all not just money everything your mindset mm. i'm so tired of people sending me like stupid i'm sorry if somebody's watching this and, and you know me and you send me this i forgive you but please stop people send me like world star look at this fight or you know look at this girl with this horrible bbl like mm. oh it's so bad i'm like what the f what did that do for me mm -hmm. what did that do for you now, okay, so her BBL is horrible and we both saw it. So now what? Nothing. We got nothing. It killed a few brain cells actually is what it did. It didn't do anything. So I'm trying so hard to be so conscious of what I see and what I'm listening to and like paying attention to it. And that meant like literally just unfollowing all like celebrity accounts and like models and like random brands that I followed and stupid like fan pages and crap. I was like, nope, 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 nope. And now it's just like, motivational, inspirational fitness, health, food, finance, you know, travel, things that I want to actually see and yeah. care about. And when so. you were paying off your debt, you had a plan. So you had a plan of 18 months. Yeah. So I feel like when you have, a, let's say, a set date of like when I'm going to become debt free, yeah. it's kind of easier to do the things that you're going to do. It's easier to say no or to inform your family and friends of what you're doing yep. so that when you can't join the hangout, you don't feel bad about it 100%. so that they can keep you abreast of everything that happened, whether yep. it's through the text or send you photos like I know what it is or I got you. Yep. It's fine. Just come out. I got yep. you for tonight. Whatever the case is, is like it makes it so much easier when you have a plan like, oh, it's 18 months. That's it. Like I, I'm going to hide this 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 person or I'm going to hide this this lifestyle thing or just curating your life, making your life whatever it needs to be for those 18 months so that you can continue. And you're going to come out different on the other side Ooh, than when yes. you went in. Yes. So there, now you're doing something else. You know, now you're debt free and you're like, okay, well, what do I want to consume? Now, like the plate is clean. Yes. And now it's like, what am I going to put on this plate? You know, it's like, even if you're vegan, like if you're vegan, why are you following a meat account? Why are you following, you know, Southern food? No. So-and-so. Usually you don't. Usually you won't. You actually be looking for stuff that's at, relevant to you. Mm -hmm. But I love that point you made because you know what? I think the point there that connects is that you have to want it so bad. Mm -hmm. Like, you got to want this more than, uh, just as much as the other stuff that you want. Like, like girls, guys too that I know, once they start, when they get engaged or they start planning their wedding, like, that's it. You know how easy it is for them to start saying, no, I can't do that because we're saving for my wedding. Mm. No, we can't. We can't do, we can't, we're saving for this wedding. We and everyone's like, wedding. oh, okay. And everyone's like, okay, mm -hmm. so why we can't do that with, with that? 
Why is that not normalized? The same way you're saving for your down payment for your house? Oh, no, we're getting real serious now. We, we can't go because we're, we're trying to hit our down payment oh, goal okay. for the house. Oh, okay, girl, yes. Okay, so why not that? Why can't it be, Nobody oh, I'm trying to pay it. off these student loans in less than three years, honey. So, no, I cannot go to that to ski trip this weekend with all of y'alls because I'm trying to pay off the student loan debt. Okay, like, it should mm-hmm. just be normal like all these other big financial goals in life. But because money's made so taboo, we over-sensationalize buying a house, getting married, having a baby, and we have all these celebrations around it, a baby shower, a housewarming. What do, what do we have for financial goals? What happens when you reach your debt payment, when you when you become debt-free? There's no debt-free party. There's no mm. debt-free baby shower, or debt-free money shower. There's no paid-off-your-student-loan debt celebration. Like We have to start creating stuff like that ourselves. That's what I was going to say. Because at the end of the day, money's always been a taboo, and the, the system as it exists wants to continue it to be that way. So you have to kind of walk against the grain. You have to like be that one little fish swimming against the current, against all the other fish, because at the end of the day, nobody's going to want you to come out on top with your money more than you. So you have to really, really want it. Like, I wanted to get out of debt so bad. I wanted to. I wanted it more than anything. So you really, really have to. It's just like a weight loss journey, just like buying a house, just like getting married. Only of these really big, big, big life changes or major accomplishments. Like, you don't just do it out of like, oh, because I kind of, you know, just did a few things every now and then and then I accomplished it. No, you got to really want it and you have to hustle for it and work for it. Yeah, well, you said um, here at the end of the book was that even after you read your first money book, mm-hmm. you still didn't have your finances straight. Mm-hmm. You said you kind of have to get to a feeling. Well, you said two things. One, you got to look at your numbers. Write everything out. Mm-hmm. Feel no shame. This is your business. Don't feel shame with yourself, right? Write out all your debt. All, look at that number and then find out why you no longer want to be in debt with that. Right. And secondly... You have to have that, I can't live like this anymore, feeling that's what it was. I can't live like this anymore. And that's when you kind of go. I want to talk a a bit about the psychology of money because what really got me flipping the pages here was that at the very beginning you said, oh, you're in debt. You know, you didn't have financial education. Now you grew up, you're in debt. It's not your fault. I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps right now. And it's not your fault, you know, and definitely because we don't have the financial education, but also in the world we live in. Boom. Like here in Miami, I brought this up in, in the, the last podcast, too. Like, why is there a Balenciaga advertisement at the bus stop? <laughs> Every bus stop. Every bus stop. I'm like, like, I'm waiting for the again, bus. Again? The free one. No, but you have to want they want you to want that. Yeah. They want you to want that. So they have to show it to you every day, everywhere you go, right? This, It's this constant barrage of ads. But, you know, that whole process of changing your mindset, I think is probably the more important than anything else. Like you mentioned, like I talk about in the book, like you have to write it out. You have to know your numbers. You have to face your numbers. But even before that, you have to get your mind right. Chapter two is called Get Your Mind Right. And it should have been chapter one. But the only reason it wasn't is because I wanted to introduce who the hell I am and mm-hmm. tell my story. Of so course. chapter one is like about me and my story and why did I write the book. And then chapter two is get your mind right. And chapter two talks about all the ways that your money tricks you. We we think, think we understand and we think this way and we think like, oh, that's that's logical. That's rational. That makes sense. No, it doesn't. It's totally irrational. And your brain is playing tricks on you. So when you start learning about that psychology behind money, you can actually defend yourself a little bit and be like, wait, nah, that's me falling for that stupid money trap. The way your brain be working where it makes you think that you're saving, but you're not saving. That's that girl math. You know, that's mm-hmm. this, that's that. So you, the more you're aware 
you could call it out and catch yourself before you fall. And then you cannot fall for these traps when it comes to money more and more often. Well, but, you bought those Ugg boots in college when you could not afford them and you didn't even like them. No. No, I thought I had to have them, though. It's just like Balenciagas. Mm -hmm. They look like somebody vomited on your feet. Stop <laughs> lying. If you out there wearing them right now, you know you look down and it looks like a pile of vomit on your feet. Stop <laughs> lying. Like, I'm tired of people acting like it's the hottest. Look, stop. I know when something looks good aesthetically, that looks like vomit on your feet. But mm -hmm. yet, we can be convinced through the constant barrage of ads that it's cool, that it's popping, that I got to have it, though, even if it's not, you know, attractive. Like, there's so many products you can name. Crocs, Uggs, Balenciagas, all this crazy stuff that people wear because they believe that when they walk down the street wearing that, everybody going to be turning their Ooh. head like, oh, you got that new, new alien hat? Okay. Like, <laughs> what? And it happens again and again with every next fad, with every next trend. And we always fall for it, the psychology of humanity. So the more we learn that, the more we can be like the ones that resist and go, okay, that's so stupid. That $350 that you spent on that little Balenciaga wallet, I could use that to buy two shares of Amazon stock. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you're out there thinking like, damn, I know I want to be better so bad, but I just can't hop off the hype. That's, I get it. Like, that's normal. Like, we live in Miami where it's a hype place. Like, I call this the land of luxury. <sighs> just it in is. my own world because it's it like is. just everything the Everywhere. car the lifestyles yes. like yes. the expensive surgeries the 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 purses the the, the cars, fucking menu the apartments the, the menus, menu the, the apartments the, food, the drinks oh my god it's yes. everything the um, boats girl the boats the boats <laughs> um and if you're like oh i just want to be better i can't like that's definitely normal and and one thing that i really like that you mentioned is go through what before you buy something go through a process of like how to get it and you and use it every time you're going to go buy something. So you mentioned Tiffany, I'm forgetting her last name from Budgetista. Mm -hmm. And she had four questions. Mm -hmm. Do I like it? Yep. Do I want it? Do I need it? And it. and do I love it? That changed everything for me yeah. cuz I'll go to the store and I'm like, "Damn, those just came out. Like I could wear these." And then I'm like, "But do I like them?" No. But, but do I need them though? Because I got two other black sneakers <laughs> pairs. Like, do I need a third pair of black sneakers, or do, should I find a sneaker that's a different color so it can add variety to my wardrobe? Like, mm -hmm. these are the type of things where you have to come back to that methodology because it gives you a little bit of reason. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, think with reason. Let's be reasonable. And it here. puts space between you and making that purchase. Yes. And that's all you need sometimes is yes. that that consciousness, that space mm -hmm. to see like, do I, you know? Because if you love it and you need it, get it. Exactly. That's my thing about buying stuff. So many people go like, oh, now. I can't get into this whole financial literacy thing because y'all be too frugal. Y'all be so cheap, like paying off the debt. Y'all be acting like, oh, you got to live like on rice and beans every day and that's it. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. If you love it and you can afford it and you have it in your plan and you see it and you like it and you're like, yes, I think I would definitely get joy and value out of this. Go ahead. Nobody's tripping. But at the end of the day, we buy so much crap that we end up not really using it. You know how much stuff, like I used to buy, I don't even know where all the clothes and all the shoes that I bought in my 20s. I thought I was J-Lo. Like, I really thought I was J-Lo. I had so many dresses in my closet from Forever 21 and H&M and so many heels, shoes in my, and purses and belts. And like, who the hell do I think I am with that kind of closet at 23 years old with $20,000 of credit card debt? It doesn't make any sense. But because I didn't have any real framework or methodology or way of thinking about money, I didn't think about money. I just spent it. Mm. You gave me 
a history of the Freeman Bank in this book. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that that had happened. Same. And can you just say a little bit whether you just want to share that story or some other knowledge that you have about people of color and money and America? Yeah. I mean, America has so much, um, you know, messed up racial history, right? And so, of course, there's so many messed up things that have happened, particularly to black Americans in this country. But then, of course, later on, as it became more of a diverse country of so many different immigrants, anybody that's not your typical Anglo, you know, have been here in and a white American for many, many generations also tend to deal with prejudice, discrimination. And in banking specifically, this has been inherently built into the system from early on. So black Americans back during the time of slavery, you were not allowed to have your own money. You were not allowed to be the steward of your own money. You couldn't manage it. You couldn't have a bank account. And so right after the Civil War, there were a lot of black soldiers that came back from fighting for this country, right? And we're like, oh, you know what? Okay, we're going to go ahead and pay them for their service and also create a bank for the freed men right so literally they put together word freed men and put freedmen's savings bank to allow those freed men who had just come from war to take the money they just earned for their service and deposit it in a savings account in an institution so they open up freedman savings bank the first bank that services black americans takes their money and puts it in there and then starts doing all types of shady stuff with that money i'm talking about risky investments expanding the bank faster than they could manage, opening locations in all these different places, mismanaging the money to the point where like, really? Really? Because you know that this is a group of people who work so freaking hard, has not been able to have access. They finally do. And now you're going to play with their money? It's so frustrating to see the stats. Like the majority of the people never were paid back everything they were owed. They were paid maybe like 60% of what they lost. The bank closed down, the bank shut down. The bank actually tried to front and pretend that everything was okay. So they hired Frederick Douglass, who's a well-known abolitionist. They they grabbed him. We're like, listen, I'm going to give you this job. You're going to be the the director of this bank. Why? Because they needed him, a black man who was very well-respected, to kind of build the trust of the black community because everybody was whispering about the bank is about to shut down. Let's go take all of our money out. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 everything's good. Frederick Douglass is running things at the bank. Oh, okay, cool, we good. No, we're not good. Literally two, three weeks after he took over the bank, he wrote to the government and said, we have to shut this bank down. And he put his own money into the bank. There's records that show, documents showing that his own money went in to try to save the bank. It was unsavable. So because they were so reckless with the money, they lost all the deposits and for years and years and years, those folks were like just waiting around, waiting to try maybe see their money back. And l- many years later, they finally gave some of them back, you know, 50%, 60% of what they lost, but they never got all their money back. And then so many generations of black people are being told by their grandparents, great grandparents, teaching their kids, don't trust the bank. Don't put money in the bank. Keep your cash in the house. Wrap it with a rubber band. Put it in a shoebox. Put it in a safe. Whatever you have to do, but do not trust the bank with your money. And then we think that... They're unreasonable. We thinking, oh, black people are bugging. They don't trust the bank. No, there's history there. Their grandparents, their great grandparents were robbed by a government institution that was created here for them to save. And so it's so interesting to me whenever I hear people saying stuff about how the system is, you know, we, we need to get over things that happened centuries ago and stuff. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. When you have been wronged and your family has been wronged, that doesn't just go away. You know, that's that passed down. That's trauma. Those are stories that stay with you. And that's why there's such a distrust. Like people don't trust institutions. They don't trust investment banks. They don't trust the regular bank. They don't want to put their money anywhere where they're not a hundred percent sure what you know what's up with this money 
Um, and so, and even today we see like banking is kind of like in disarray. Like we see Silicon Valley Bank shut down. We see what happened with First Republic Bank. We see all these banks like, and of course that's scary, but banking, just learn a little bit about how banking works and you kind of understand like when they take your money, they have to make more money with that money. Because if they don't, then they can't pay you the interest they promised you in your savings account. Mm. So the bank is a business, okay? So they're going to take your money and they're going to invest it, whether that's in bonds or whether that's in real estate or that's through lending it out through mortgages or credit cards or personal loans. They got to go make loans, take their money, lend it to someone else and collect interest. And then they take a little piece of that and give it back to you. That's normal. That's how banking works. But sometimes they miscalculate. They do things that are a little risky. They mess it up. And, and that happens sometimes, not often, but it does in this, in this case with Freedman Savings Bank, it's so heartbreaking. And to me, when I learned that, because I had learned about like, I had learned about the Tulsa massacre and I remember being taught about black wall street and stuff, but I had never heard the story of Freedman Savings Bank until I started doing research, um, during black lives matter. And that's when I started learning. All right. I need to, I need to see like, what is it? What's deeply rooted within money and black communities here in the U S and I learned that I said, I have to include that story in my book. With this history, you also mention areas uh, in the U.S. that you have to drive miles to go to the, your bank. Yeah. And then you also break down this um, percentages of like families living in America that don't have bank accounts right. or people that, you know, get their money through checks or pay fees by uh, cashier's checks. Like, I, I guess they just go and like cash their checks. Yeah. And they pay a percentage and of their check. A big a big yep. percentage for that just to like not have to go through the banks and stuff and you know we think we're, we're living over here thinking like oh everybody got at least a, a a debit account or something and it's it's not oh yeah it's not like that it's not those are called bank deserts just like there's food deserts right there's a lot of food insecurity and food injustice where people don't have access to fresh food fresh vegetables and fruits right only like fast food places like McDonald's and Burger King, Taco Bell everywhere, White Castle everywhere, but you don't see a farmer's market anywhere. Mm. You know, that's a food desert. Same thing with money. When you see only check cashing places everywhere and payday loan places everywhere, but you don't see a single bank or credit union, that's a bank desert. And there's a lot, and specifically, particularly in this country, down south. Um, and, and we, uh, you know, that's where a lot of, like, older generations of black folks have been in the south. And, have you know, that's where a lot of... Um, a lot of like deeply rooted communities of of generations and generations of black folks that have been through slavery, that have lived on plantations, that have been and want to stay where they're rooted in the South. So it's so interesting. You start to see, okay, where there's more black and brown people, that's where there's more likely to be food insecurity and food injustice and food deserts and bank deserts. So it, it always kind of comes back to like these discriminatory systems and how can we alleviate people from not and, and, and clean up the systems so that they're not so you know, messed up and dirty. Um, but at the end of the day, when it comes to banks and credit unions, I think now everything is sort of moving more to online, which I, I like because it means that you don't have to be in a neighborhood where they got a bank on the up the block. You can just, from your phone, you can start investing in the stock market in a couple minutes. From your laptop with a dollar and a Wi-Fi connection, boom, you can start investing in an investment account. And I like that because it empowers us. But then at the end of the day, there is a small percentage of people in this country that still don't have internet access, and particularly like very rural areas where they're like in areas that are too far from being able to connect to the internet but that's a, such a small percentage of people not as much as unbanked or underbanked or people that live in bank deserts or food deserts so i feel like technology is really coming in and helping to solve some of those problems before we i have some questions <laughs> that people sent me over instagram <laughs> they're burning money questions yes. and i want to ask you 
those so that you can give some folks ad- advice or insight just yeah. from what you know. But before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about investing? Like, what are stocks and bonds? <laughs> I already know this from your book, but um, what are stocks and bonds? Like, like, how do you invest? Do you have to have money to invest? Do you have to be rich? Can you be in debt and invest? Like, what? What? What's the deal? Yeah, I mean, anybody can invest. If you have debt, you can still invest. If you don't have a lot of money, you can still start with however much you can afford to put. If it's a dollar, if it's five dollars, yep, you can invest that dollar. You can invest that five dollars. Um, and like I said before, technology has been playing a big role in all of this. Before, back in the day, you could not really start investing with just $1 or $5. You had to have a significant amount of money and you had to know a stockbroker. That was the only way you could really buy stocks. So the, a lot of rumors nowadays are from like how things used to be back in the day. So if you ever hear somebody saying, oh, no, you need a lot of money to make money. That used to be true, but that's not true anymore because there's so much technology that allows you to do it again with almost no money. So if you want to start investing in the stock market, you have to just understand the concept is basically like giving you the opportunity to own a tiny fractional piece of a company. You don't own the whole company. But it's like if me and Amanda started a company right now, you know, like Dominicanas Invest, and we start teaching people about investing and the company grows to a $100,000 business. Well, then Amanda is half owner and I'm half owner. So you have 50% share of ownership in our business, which that which is equal to $50,000 of value. And I have the other share. The other 50% share of ownership is the other half, which is another 50000 But let's say we just keep on putting more workshops out there. More people start buying tickets. We get a deal with, you know, uh, CNBC. And now we have a syndicated show. We're making a million dollars a year. Our business is now a million dollar business. But we still own 50% share of ownership in that company. So your 50% share now grew, even though it's the same percentage, it's of a larger business. So that company growing to a million dollar business means your 50% share of ownership is now worth $500,000. And my half, my 50% of ownership is now worth $500,000. So if you buy ownership in a company, even if it's only a tiny little piece, but you hold it while the company grows and grows and grows, the value of that share is going to grow and grow and grow. And then when you sell, you keep a big profit. So if we started a business at 100000 and then it grew to a million and then we sell that business, we literally profit $900,000, right? And each of us takes our 50% share. So you're never really going to be able to get 50% shares of any company in the stock market because that's just not how it works, right? These are multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollar businesses, but you can definitely buy $10 or $5 or $1 or even $1,000 worth of stock. So however much money you have, You can either buy what's called fractional shares, which means it doesn't really matter if it's one whole share of stock. Like it might not be one share. It might be like a little piece of a share because if the share costs $100, but you only have $20 to start, then you can't buy a share because a share costs $100. But you could buy $20 worth, which is one fifth of a share. So you own a little piece. It's like if the share is a pizza, you don't eat the whole thing, but oh, but you get a slice. So you can still get a little piece of this and then keep holding that piece. And as the business grows, your ownership stake stays the same, but the value of that piece is going to grow. So you can make a lot of money. Some people buy shares of stock for like a couple hundred bucks and then they end up being worth thousands of of dollars and they sell it and keep the profit. Um, The hard part is holding because the value changes over time. So maybe Amanda and my business, you know, is doing really well. And then all of a sudden COVID hit. Nobody's going to workshops no more. CNBC stops our, our partnership with them. Our business is now worth negative $20,000. What do you think is going to happen? The people who look at us like, oh, dang, y'all are, you're struggling, you're, you're failing. 
but maybe we're just going through a rough time, but we're still going to bring the business back. So you're, you might see that when you buy a stock, the price goes down and then you start freaking out and you're like, oh no, oh no, I don't want to lose my money, right? So at that point, you're like thinking, oh, should I sell it? Because I don't want to lose more money. But when you're investing in good companies, that's why you have to do your research and just understand what are you buying? Because if you're buying quality things, they might be going through a rough patch. They might drop the value a little bit, might go down. The price might drop. But over time, companies that are really strong tend to just grow. So you usually will make way more money just holding it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, rather than if you just leave it in the bank where it's probably not going to grow more than a couple of percentage points per year because the bank really only gives you a little bit. Um, they need to make a profit. So they only give you, you know, right now in a high yield savings account, for example, like 2023, high yield savings accounts were really high, like 4%, 5%. But the stock market was 24%. So it's like, you think you're making a lot in the bank, but investments are going to allow you to make even more over time. And the, the market is not like the bank. Like, we can trust the market. Yes. You can trust the the bank and you can trust the market. The reason why you can trust the bank differently is because the bank is insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That's what everybody's always saying. FDIC, FDIC, right? The FDIC is basically a fund where all the banks pay every month a little bit. And then if one of the banks fails and shuts down, like Silicon Valley Bank, okay, well, then all that money that has been poured into the FDIC fund gets used to pay back the people who lost their money from that bank failing, but only up to $250,000 per person per account because they got, come on, they don't got unlimited money. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing with the stock market, there's SIPC insurance, but it's only for certain amounts of money that were held with the intention to invest it. Once you actually invest the money and buy a stock, there's really no insurance or guarantee or promise. You could lose it all. But if you're investing strategically and being smart and holding investments for a long period of time, it's, almost, it's very unlikely that you're going to lose all your money unless you only buy the same company stock over and over and over again and you don't diversify. So in my book, in, in Chapter 7, I talk a lot about like the basic rule of investing is don't put all your money in one thing. Even if you like real estate, don't put all your money in one house because in 2008, when the stock market crashed, it was because of the housing market. So when real estate values started dropping, if all your wealth is in your house and your house just lost 50% of its value, you can't sell it for what you paid for. Now your wealth literally got cut in half. So you can't have all your money just sitting in one asset, whether it's a house, whether it's a certain stock, whether it's a bond. It doesn't matter what investment. You can never have all your money in one place. That's taking too much risk. So you got to spread it out. You know, maybe you have some real estate, maybe you have some stocks, maybe you have some uh, funds, maybe some bonds, maybe you have a business that generates money. But you really want to have your money working for you in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways is investing it in the stock market. Mm. So we're going to get to some of these questions that um, folks sent in over Instagram. Thank you all for sending these questions. They're all so good. And yes. there is clearly from what we spoke about, there's a lot of vulnerability, taboo, shame, all of that stuff around money. So just asking a question, you might feel like you're out there. So yeah. thank you for these. It's possible that you might have answered some of these okay. um, already, but... We are going to answer them again, keep them concise. Um, and mostly I'm interested in like what Yaneli would do, what okay. Miss Be Helpful would okay. do, you know? Okay, all right, what would um, I do? <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually the most recent one I got, so I'm going to start with this one. All right. I have this small inheritance that my mom just left me, and I don't know what to do with it or where to put it. I have it in a CD right now, but the 18 months are up next month, and I want to take it out of there because it's not growing at a rate I'd like to. 
My dad told me I should invest in stock bonds, but I don't know where to begin. Then my aunt told me I should buy a co-op and take a loan out for the rest. So I just want to see what options I have. Ultimately, I just want the inheritance to kind of grow on its own. I don't really want to touch it. What's your advice? First for- of all, I love that she just wants it to grow on its own and doesn't want to touch it. That's a beautiful thing. A lot of people, they want to gamble with that money. They want to go, you know, go to the casino <laughs> and play with that money. So here's what I would say. Any inheritance like this, um, it was smart for her to lock it in a CD until she figured things out. I'm going to start with that. Mm. I would have done the same thing. If I don't really know what to do with the money, I'm not going to do anything until I feel confident with my choice. When you feel rushed into making a financial decision, don't do it. Nobody should be rushing you. If they're telling you, oh, you can only get this deal today. This is only today only. Run. Red flag. I should be able to, to purchase something from you anytime. Mm. So if you're trying to put pressure on me, it's, there's a scam involved. So I love that she locked it in a CD until she figured it out. Her, her next step is going to be to prioritize, I would say, three or four things. What are the top three or four things right now financially that matter most to her? For me, for John Ailey, he's asked me, what would I would do? I would start with retirement. I am so tired of seeing people in this country being elderly and not having anything to fend for themselves. And I'm working. So working at Walmart, working at Target, working because they don't have the ability to stop working because they wouldn't have money coming in or their social security check is just not enough. So you have to have your own pot of money that's just growing, 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 growing. And if social security is not enough, it doesn't matter. You have your own pot of money that you can start taking out a monthly or an annual allowance but in order to grow that a lot, you have to start young. So that's where a 401k plan comes in. That's a really good retirement investment account. That's where a Roth IRA comes in, another really good investment account for retirement. So if she does not already have anything set up for retirement, that I would be my number one. Whether it's opening a Roth IRA or a brokerage account and just start investing money in there with the purpose specifically saying, when I retire, that's going to be the money that's going to take care of me. Even if I don't have income, that's going to be my income. Mm. Um, and this is an inheritance that her mom left her. So I think thinking about it in that way, like this is going to take care of me. Like she'll yeah. take care of me when yeah. it's time. I think that's also that, I love beautiful. that. And what the reason why I'll say the Roth IRA, you know, in the book, I say the Roth IRA is the GOAT. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the GOAT. It's the best account. Why? Because for inheritances, if she wants to continue this, that her, what her mom did for her, she can pass an inheritance down to her children. Through the Roth IRA, if you end up leaving money in there that you don't use, it's the only retirement account that does not have a required distribution. That means that you have to start taking money out when you reach a certain age, like 70, or whether you like it or not, at 70 years old, you have to start taking money out of your 401k. You can't just leave the money there to keep growing, 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 growing. I mean, you wish you could, but you can't. So you have to start taking money out every year. And they help you calculate it when you file your taxes and all that. No, Roth IRA doesn't have that. So you could just let that money just keep growing like crazy. You could have, you could, it could reach a billion dollars, a trillion dollars tax-free when you take it out and it can be inherited by your children tax-free as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking like, where do I want to start growing money for my own retirement, start investing in the stock market, but also have an account that if anything, if I end up not using it, that I could pass it down to my children with no taxes and like headache-free, Roth IRA. So I would start their retirement. Second thing is I would say like, what are the short or midterm goals that she wants to achieve financially? If she's interested in real estate, okay, well then maybe she can set up another CD and move the down payment for the house or some money towards a down payment there while she starts looking for a property that she might be interested in owning. So I do think like 
again, you see how the aunt was like, no, buy a co-op. And the, and the dad was like, oh, buy stocks. It's never all the money going into one thing. That's zero diversification. So for her, it's a matter of what are the two or three main things. For me, it's retirement, my short or midterm goals that I really want. Because retirement is really that long-term goal. You got that long-term check, right? Now midterm, short-term. What are the things that I can see in three years, in five years, or in the next 12 months that I want to achieve? So that means for me, saving like six or eight months of living expenses, just park that in a high yield savings account. Don't even touch that. If anything happened, I lost my job or I get into a horrible car accident and I'm like out of commission, can't work, can't walk, can't do nothing. That's the money to help me pay for medical care, help me pay for my medical bills, help me pay for my rent while I'm not making money. So emergency savings fund, short term. And then midterm is really whatever she wants. Like if she wants to make a take a trip, like uh, inheritance is a beautiful thing, you know. The hardest part is once you open the Roth IRA or the investment account, what to buy. She's going to have to really start learning about funds because my favorite way to invest is not to buy one stock or two stocks. It's to actually buy hundreds or thousands of stocks with the click of one button. And the only way to do that is through investment funds. There's different funds like mutual funds or index funds or exchange traded funds or target date funds. And they all have different styles like you know like if you hanging out with your friends they want to play a drinking game you know you're like okay what y'all feeling like we're gonna play beer pong we're gonna pay we're gonna play kings like there's different ones and what's the vibe what do you feel like what do you want to play what are the rules to the game like you just gotta know each account each type of investment and each type of investment account they all have a different vibe different rules different you know um just strings attached and things that you have to keep in mind. So start learning about those and then pick the one that you like the best. For me, my favorite investment is ETFs. I love ETFs, exchange traded funds. You can buy the whole stock market with one ETF that captures the total stock market. You can buy the whole world. You can buy the global stock markets all around the world, all of them. Every stock that's publicly traded in the whole world, you can buy it by just buying an ETF that has a global world fund. That's a global world fund. So to me, I like that because I'm like, oh, I could just own everything. I don't have to pick a stock. I don't have to find two and research and look at the financials. Like I can just go with a fund that has a lot of successful companies and they're very, very affordable and it's quick to own. So I like ETFs. Okay. What's your favorite stock? Someone mm. wants to know. Okay, well, I'm not a big I'm not big on individual stocks, but my favorite stocks are <laughs> are um are like for me it's the united states so if i was gonna buy a group of stocks right now and i had extra money i would buy the total stock market index fund if you have like depending where you invest so like let's say you invest with fidelity or you invest with charles schwab or you invest with vanguard each of these bank each of these investment banks each have a, a their own version of that fund so I want to buy the total stock market means I, I want to buy 4,000 stocks that are American. Every stock you can think of in America, Johnson and Johnson, Bank of America, Apple, Amazon, Google, all of every stock. And in the United States, I would own a little tiny piece of it if I buy the total stock market index. But it's like saying I want to buy a black scarf. All right. So you're going to buy it from the Gap. You're going to buy it from Zara. You're going to buy it from Old Navy. Where are you going to buy it from, right? Now, now when you pick where you're going to buy it from, like, they're all going to have different prices. The, the scarf, the black scarf at Old Navy might be 100% cotton black scarf for $20. Then you get the same scarf from Target, 100% cotton black scarf from Target might be $24. Then you go to Zara, 100% cotton black scarf might be $81. So you got to pick. Like, they're all 100% cotton 
black scarves. You want to pay more just for the name brand? Like, that's on you, right? Mm -hmm. Me, the way I invest, I don't pay more for brands. I like to buy the cheapest cost funds that give me access to every American stock. So total stock market index fund, that's my favorite. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> um, this is not a question, but I've been dealing with crypto for about six years and always curious about who likes it. Ooh. Okay, so people who are going to like crypto are going to be investors who believe that it's going to have a lot of value for a certain purpose for certain people. And that once people start realizing it's going to have that a lot of value, they're going to start wanting to buy it. And the price is going to start going up the more people that want to buy it. So what is the value that Bitcoin has or crypto, any type of crypto besides Bitcoin? Bitcoin was just the first. Well, the value it brings is that before cryptocurrencies actually were successful in 2009, there were so many genius, like crypt, um, cryptographers and like, um, computer software engineers and coders who were trying to put their heads together and figure out a way to make computer money that you don't need a bank account. You don't need dollars, coins, a credit card, a debit card. You don't need nothing. You don't need anything that has to do with banks or the government or nothing. You just need an internet connection. And then you can, if you can participate in this system, you don't have to have any connection to the money that we know from our world, right? So they wanted to create a new form of money that was just in the computers. So nobody could freaking do it. They couldn't do it. They tried. They created um, Bitcash, Hashcash, Bitgold. Like if you start looking in the history and start learning about it, there's so many. There were so many like and none of them could work because they realized at some point that they needed the bank and the government to be involved in order for it to for me to be able to send you the money. For the money to go from my account to Amanda's account, the government or the bank needs to get involved. But the first time that a successful transaction happened where my money can go from me to you and no bank and no government was ever involved was in 2009 when Bitcoin was created. It succeeded at solving that problem of not needing the bank, not needing the government. We could just use the computer code to send money to each other. That's a huge thing because it was a problem that no one could solve. Even the most genius people that the government hired couldn't figure it out. And then the creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, who nobody knows who they are, they're anonymous, they solved the problem and created the first way you, that it could happen. So I do believe there's value in that. Like anytime you solve a problem, you create value. Like you've given me a solution that never existed before. That's value. But the problem is who finds it valuable? Who mm. out there really cares that there's computerized money that doesn't require the bank or the government to get involved and wants to use that computerized money? Are, is it a lot of people, a little bit of people? Like how many, and like, and is it going to really continue to be popular? Those are questions that nobody knows the answer to unless you, Walter Mercado, like, and he's gone rest <laughs> in peace, okay? So if you'd have a crystal ball, you can tell the future, you might know. Nobody, we're, we don't know. We're all guessing. We're all speculating. So at the end of the day, people that like crypto, either they want to speculate and they think it's, they really are banking on the fact that more people are going to learn eventually that there's real value there and want to use it. But I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. So it's kind of you're taking a bit of a gamble. Personally, I have invested in crypto, but I would never invest more than 5% of my entire net worth. It's That's too risky for me. D from Mexico City wants to know which crypto would Yaneli buy today? I currently own Ethereum or Ether. It's on the Ethereum blockchain network. Um, but I own Ether. I own Bitcoin. And I own, I still think I have a little bit of Cardano, but I don't. I never like I kind of got into it because I was curious and people were saying that it was going to be used for all these cool projects. But then it's such a little bit that I might honestly just like 
transfer back to Ether and only have Ether and Bitcoin. Those are the first two crypto coins. And I'm not really into trying to keep track of all the new ones and which ones are going to be hot. Like, I just, I just, you know, I understand crypto is important, but the first two that really blew up were Bitcoin and Ether. So those are the two that I, I kind of like trust. Okay. X from the BX wants to know, <laughs> can my W-2 job support my LLC and it compensate for business expenses? Ooh, that's a good point. I don't think that they can compensate for your business expenses because you still have to write those off on your taxes and you have to pay for those expenses yourself. But you can use the money that you earn from your W-2 job to invest into your business and then that does qualify for write-off so the company you work for isn't going to do it directly but they're going to pay you in a paycheck and then you take that money and go if you want to start a content company you buy the microphone you buy the computers you buy the cameras and then that's basically taking your w-2 pay and turning it into an investment into a business and then all that stuff you can write off when you file your taxes your llc is not a tax uh benefit or a tax categorization it literally all it is is limiting your liability. It's limited liability corporation, which means that if you, you know, uh, set host an event and somebody comes and and you know breaks their ankle when they come inside or whatever, they can't sue you for your personal bank account. They can only sue the the business. So anything that the LLC owns, that's what they can sue because you're limiting the liability in any type of lawsuit to the corporation's assets and not your personal money in your checking account and your savings account. So I, I don't like when people think like taxes and LLC has anything to do with each other because it doesn't. Mm. Your taxes don't it doesn't matter if you have an LLC or not. Your your taxes are still just going to be filed the way every business files their taxes. Um, so it's just very important to like, no, this is really only to protect your personal assets, which I still think people should do. If you have a business, I do believe you should do an LLC, uh, LLC to protect your personal assets. But I don't think you should think like that it is going to help you with taxes in any way because it's not it's just protecting your personal assets. Speaking of businesses, why um, from New York wants to know, how can you get an investor for your brand? What are the ways you get an investor for a design brand aside from a business plan? Ooh, okay, so a pitch. So your business plan is important because it's the first way that you're going to throw all your ideas on paper and then you can actually email it to somebody and say, check this out, what do you think about my business plan, right? But the other way is to actually put together a pitch deck. So you have a couple slides, maybe seven to ten slides in a deck, and you could do this for free in Canva, in Google Slides, wherever, right? But you definitely want to have a few uh, important points. You know, what is the problem that you're solving? You know, what's the product or service that you're providing where is the customer base? Is there a real market for this product or service? How do you know what research did you do to figure out the market? Like, do you have customers that are willing to pay you? How much are they willing to pay you? What are the projections for this next year, for the next three years? If you give me an idea that I think sounds really freaking good and like you yourself are presenting it in a way that you clearly have passion, you know what the hell you're talking about, investors are going to want to invest if they're looking to invest. But you have to find out who's looking to invest. You, the, the annoying thing is that you're trying to sell to somebody who's not looking to buy. So don't think anybody with money could be an investor. No, people who are investors in businesses are specifically looking to find a business that they believe in, then they would drop their money in there and walk away, do nothing, and then the business grows and their money gives them a return. So you have to actually go out and start finding people who want to invest in a business. The best way is to start asking everybody and their mama, everyone that you know, hey, I'm starting a business. I have a pitch deck. I want to send it to you. Can you please send it to anybody that you know? I'm happy to jump on a Zoom call, answer questions. But if you meet anyone who's interested in investing in a business, specifically a design firm, I'm looking for investors. And the more you talk to people, 
the more those people will be in rooms where they'll be like, oh, you're looking to invest in businesses? I actually know somebody who just started a design firm. Can I send you the pitch deck and connect you with her? Those connections will happen when you open your mouth and start talking about them to everyone that you know. Mm. Speaking of people with money, V from Miami wants to know, how do these rich folk pay such low taxes? Yet my tax rate is ridiculous. I want lower taxes now. (laughs) All right. How do rich people pay less taxes? They look at the tax code or they hire someone more likely. They hire someone to look in detail at the tax code and find out what are all of the available credits and deductions that they can use. Credits are different from deductions. A tax credit is literally money that you're going to get. So if it's a thousand dollar tax credit, you're going to get a thousand dollars, right? But if it's a thousand dollar deduction, you're not going to get a thousand dollars. You're going to lower your tax bill by one thousand dollars. So it's very important to understand that there are many different deductions out there. You got to learn all of them and see which ones can you qualify for. And you can't do that when it's time to file your taxes because it's too late. So you need to have a tax planning strategy where you think, okay, before December 31st, when this tax year ends, what do I need to do so that when I go file my taxes for this year, I've done something in that year that lower that qualifies me for a deduction that lowers my tax bill. So one easy thing that I do every year that lowers my taxes, I max out my retirement account at work. My 401k, I smack that thing all the way up until that thing is full. I keep throwing money, throwing money. And if I max it out, so I think this year it's like 23000 Uh, dollars that you can put into it so twenty three thousand dollars gets subtracted from my taxable income when i go to file my taxes if i did not max out my 401k i would be paying taxes on that twenty three thousand dollars when tax time comes so easy ways to lower your your tax burden is to look for for deductions that you qualify for and the way rich people do it they start businesses they create a business they hire their kids they hire people when you hire employees write-offs right you can write off what you pay your employees. You can write off anything that you're spending on for your business. Anything that is ordinary and necessary for you to operate your business, you can write off on your taxes. Now, it's not going to be a dollar per dollar savings. So let's say I buy this microphone for Miss Be Helpful for my business. So I have a podcast. I have a YouTube channel. I need this microphone. This microphone costs $100. And I write it off. I'm not going to get $100 off. It's more like a coupon code. So you're going to save a certain percentage off of that amount when you file your taxes. So let's say your tax bracket is, let's say, like 20%. That means you're going to get 20% off of that $100. So you're going to save $20. You're not going to save the full price of it. So it's like a coupon code based on your tax bracket. But that's still lowering your tax burden. And so a lot of people, rich people, will buy a boat and say it's for the business. Mm. They'll, they'll host events. They'll plan events and all the food and drinks and everything is for the business. They'll do marketing. It's for the business. They'll take a trip. It's a business trip. All of that lowers their tax uh, burden because they're re- using deductions to write a lot of those uh, expenses off. Mm. A regular person with a W-2 job has nothing that they can write off. You can't write off anything when you have a W-2 job. You don't have a business. You work for a business. You're the write-off for them. Like So if you want to find deductions and write-offs, you, you kind of either have to start a business or you got to have a baby. <laughs> write the baby off. You know how they do in the hood. Uh, let me write. Let me get your kid so I can write them mm-hmm. off so I can claim your kid on my income taxes, right? <laughs> those, are, those are the fastest ways to get lower taxes to have a kid or start a business. If you don't want to have a kid, start a business. Speaking of kids... <laughs> 
Um, L from the Midwest wants to know setting up trust. What's the four one one? Ooh, so setting up a trust is a way to make sure that the person that is uh, that you want to give the money to can only get access to the money in a certain instances. And you are the one that gets to decide as the one who's setting up the trust and funding it, what they're going to do. So, um, for example, like the Rockefeller family, like they, they're one of the only families that still to this day, like six, seventh generations are still very wealthy. They haven't lost their wealth. Why? Because they set up trusts and the trusts get passed down generation to generation. You can only access the trust when you turn 21 years old and you have to do certain things. So if you really want to make sure that your children or that your grandchildren you know, do certain things a certain way and then they can get your money, then you should set up a trust and indicate what does the trustee need to do to be able to unlock this money. Mm. Um, so, and a lot of, I think it can be dangerous because a lot of families, when there's like toxic stuff going on, they might use it to control their kids. They might say, well, you can't unlock the trust unless you get married or unless you this or that. And that to me is messed up. That's problematic and that's toxic. But you can use trust in a positive way that's not coercive, that's not contro controlling, and more so just say, hey, like, you know, when you're this age and when you've done, you know, maybe when you finish school or have gotten a certification of some kind or apprenticeship or, so, you know, so that you've done some type of higher ed or achieved something, maybe started your own business, and then you can access this much money. And then every year after that, you can access this much more. But you you put the rules in place and so that you can make sure that, like, this person ain't just going to unlock the trust, take all the money, go run and buy a Lamborghini, and then waste all your money that you put there for them. So you have a lot of control to decide how they get the money, when they get the money. L from Brooklyn wants to know, how do I even come up with financial goals? Ooh, I would say sit down. And like really, really, really reflect and do it in a way where you're comfortable, like turn down the lights, put on a candle, pour yourself a little wine, like treat yourself, feel good. Like, all right, I feel good. Like, what do I love about my life and how do I want my life to be better? Like in five years, do I want to be in this exact same apartment with this exact same candle and wine or do I want to be somewhere else or do I want to live like different? Like, do I want to own a home? Do I want to have a van? Do I want to like have a little car or a big car? Like, do I want to have children or not? Like, do I want to own a business or nah, that's too much for me. I don't want to have all that hassle. Like really think and create and create the future that you want in your mind and then write down all the elements of that life that you would need to achieve to create it and what are the financial pieces of it. So home ownership, if you see that in your future, you have to have a down payment. If you don't have a down payment, ain't no bank that's going to want to mess with you. So you have to start thinking, okay, if home ownership is for real in my vision for three, five, ten years out, then I need to start saving now for a down payment. Right. If I don't really want to own a home, I just want to travel the world. I just want to be in China. Then I want to be in Japan. Then I want to be in Australia. Then I want to go over here. I just want to travel the world. All right. Well, then how do, what are you going to have to do so that you can save enough money to be able to travel the world or find a remote job that allows you to work from anywhere in the world? These are your goals. You're going to have to start writing them down. Right. And to me, that starts with this initial exercise of like that envisioning of like what literally does my life look like and to me, I do it every year because it changes every year. Like when I was like 26 years old, all I want to do is get married, buy a house and have a baby. And now I do not want to get married. I do not want to have a baby and I do not want to own a house. <laughs> I like renting an apartment. I love traveling. I like sleeping in every single day. Do not set alarms over here on this side. And if I had a baby, I would have, I wouldn't be able the baby's my alarm. Okay. I wouldn't be able to like, I wouldn't be able to sleep in on Sundays. Right. So for me, I have now done this exercise every year where I create the life that I want and then I set up the financial goals that need to support that life. 
Um, she also asks, how much sha- uh, how much savings should we really have? Ooh, there's a lot of different opinions about this. Me personally, I think it just depends on what makes you feel safe. When you go to sleep at night, like how do you really feel like you're good? Like you can sleep without stress. You're not worrying about like, oh, I don't have enough money. Yeah. For some people, that's a whole year. Like they literally take their rent. They say their rent is, uh, you know, $1,500 and then their groceries is $500 a month and then their car bill is another $500 a month. So they're like, okay, I got $2,500 of, of, of expenses every single month. I'm going to multiply that by 12 months, okay? And that is the amount of money that I have to have in my savings account so I can sleep peacefully at night. Somebody else might look at them and be like, you are buck wild. Who the hell? You're bugging. You're doing too much. That's so extra. You, all you need is like three or four months and then you're good. That means that this three or four month person has a little bit more of an appetite for risk, mm. right? That other person who needs 12 months of savings, they're risk averse. They're risk averse. They, they, they're not, they don't like risk. They're not comfortable with risk. So you got to figure out where you're at on that like continuum and see like if I'm okay with a little bit of risk, then I'm okay with having savings of like, three to six months worth of however much it costs me to live in a month. If I'm way more risk averse and I'm like more conservative type, I'm going to want to have, you know, maybe nine months, 10 months, 12 months of whatever it costs for me to live in one month, bare bones, you know, your bills, your food, your, your housing, transportation, that multiplied by 12. So then you could be anywhere in between, but I would say try not to have less than like one to two months of living costs because if you lose your job tomorrow and you don't have two months of rent in an account, how are you gonna pay your rent tomorrow? Mm. So, and you don't want to mess up your credit, then your landlord's on your on your back, and you're trying to find a new job, and all these things are stressing. You don't want to deal with that. So at least try to have you know the next eight weeks, the next twelve weeks of your life financially in an account so that you're not stressing yourself out. A from Maryland, Baltimore, wants to know what are the best practices for couples? Oh, not married, just living together, living life together. And yeah, I mean, oh, my gosh, this this depends on the couple. Like for me personally, my boyfriend and I, we are very, very separate with our finances. We have one joint checking account. And the only reason that we established that was because it was starting to get annoying as hell to have to like cash up and Venmo each other every time that we split shit. Like it was just like, come on, son. Like again, I gotta, it's very annoying because we split groceries, we split restaurant date nights, we split, um, you know, random stuff, the furniture that we buy for the apartment, we split movie tickets, we'll split, whatever we go out, we, we just split stuff, right? And sometimes I'll treat him or he'll treat me. He'll be like, it's on me tonight baby and i'll be like it's on me right but most of the time we just split everything so if we're splitting stuff then it does make sense to like just like have a joint checking account but i still have all my accounts and he still has all his accounts and every month on payday we we have an automatic transfer into that joint account from each of our separate accounts so we just just like we know it's our homework every month to like put money into that account so that we can from that account the the rent gets paid automatically and we use the debit card to buy groceries and things like so that main joint savings um, checking account is for us to be able to do our spending, to pay the Wi-Fi bill, the, you know, all the electric bill, the gas bill, the rent. But we do not conjoin, like join together our finances in every way. Like that's the only way is just that account that pays our shared expenses. I know a lot of couples that are like, no, we put everything, one account, both our names. To me, that is a big risk and a big red flag because if when two people have access to an account, either one of them can take everything out and disappear. And they have every single right. You can't do nothing. You can't take them to court. You can't go to the police. Nothing. Because they had 100% right to access that money. So you got to always have your own. You got to always have your own back 
you never not to assume that person's going to do you wrong but i've heard horror stories and you never know so you always got to have your own stash to take care of yourself on the side okay oof that's tough because what's love got to do with it? Honey. It looks like nothing. Honey. <laughs> it looks like love is somewhere all the way over there and got nothing to do with the money over here. <laughs> nothing at all. Um, there's a few questions about Roth IRA accounts, the okay. GOAT account. Yes. Um, so I'm going to ask love them together and you'll find that maybe it's the okay. kind of the same question. So someone said, how do I start, how do I start a Roth IRA and can I roll over a traditional can I roll it over into a traditional 401k? Okay, got you. And the other one is, um, one second. Uh, can you request your job not give you a 401k and input that money amount into a Roth IRA instead? Got you. And high yield savings account, tips and pointers for beginners. Okay, so let's do the first one, which is how to start. So how to start a Roth IRA, you have to choose an investment bank. It's the same thing as saying, how do I buy a black scarf? You got to choose the store you're going to go buy it at. Okay. Is it going to be Old Navy? Is it going to be Zara? Is it going to be Target? Where are you going to buy this black scarf? Figure out where. And then go to that store and buy it. Right. You have to figure out which investment bank you want. Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Vanguard. There's so many providers nowadays. You have so many options, just like so many stores. Right. So pick the one that you want. And if you don't know how to pick any, many, money mo. Catch a investment bank by the toe, pick one of them and just start because the, at, at the end of the day, they're not really all that different. I really prefer the large discount brokerages like Fidelity, Vanguard, Charles Schwab, those major ones because they offer you everything, a full suite of services. And they're really re well established and reputable. So, you know, they ain't playing with your money. Some of these new apps and things like you got to be careful. So I would say just choose one of those guys, go onto their website, start an account. You're going to have to create a username and a password and when you log in, you're going to have to link it to your bank account. When you link it to your bank account, it takes two or three days to actually connect those two accounts together. And once you do that, you can then transfer the money. So then you say, let's say you take $100 out of your checking account, transfer it over. It transfers easily within a day or two because you already linked them. And then your job, the hard part is to now say, what do I want to buy with this $100? Now that I opened the Roth IRA I chose the investment bank. I opened the Roth IRA. I set up my username and password. I linked it to my bank account and transferred in $100. Now I got to use that $100 to buy something. So that whole process would take anywhere from like five to seven days to the moment that you're actually clicking buy the buy button with your $100 to buy total stock market ETF or uh, S&P 500 index funds, right? Well, you choose the investment and then you, you buy it then. But opening the Roth IRA is very easy. The hard part is what are you going to buy inside of that Roth IRA? Because the Roth IRA is like, is like a suitcase is empty. You have to fill it with stuff. You have to actually use the money inside to buy investments. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how you start. And then you asked about rolling over. Um, you cannot roll over money from Roth to traditional or traditional to Roth unless you're going to be okay with the tax consequences. Because any account that's traditional, it means that the taxes are not owed until you take the money out in the future. So that's like a regular 401k, a traditional IRA. Those are accounts where the rule says that when you take the money out at retirement, that's when you pay taxes. With a Roth account, Roth 401k, a Roth IRA, the word Roth is the sign to you that you are not going to have to pay taxes when you take the money out because you're going to deal with the taxes now. You're going to let that money get taxed now. And then the after tax money, you're going to use it to put it in the account. So you've already paid your taxes. You it's the traditional it. IRA where you put in the money without it being taxed. And then yes. you get taxed and on the other end. And then it gets taxed when you take it out. Okay. So Roth, 
R for Roth is R for right now is when you're paying the taxes. That's the easy way to remember it. Versus traditional is when you take the money out is when it gets taxed. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that helps you remember that. Um, yes, if you leave your old job and there was an 401k there and it has money, don't leave it with them. If you're leaving that job, take your money with you. Why would you leave them with your money and you leave? Like, no, leave with you. Take your money with you. So you should roll over that 401k. If it's a Roth 401k, roll it over into a Roth IRA. But if it's a regular 401k, it doesn't have the word Roth in front of it, that means it's traditional. So then you have to roll it into a traditional IRA because it's easier to keep all the money in the same types of accounts so you, you don't get a tax headache. Mm, okay. um, and then the third one was what? It was how to start. Can I roll it over? Oh, can I say no to my job? Mm -hmm. I love this question. You don't, you don't have to say, you, you, the only way that you start with a 401k is if you sign up for it. There's no way there's money in a 401k plan for you unless you signed up for it. Your job cannot take your money from your paycheck and put it in there. They can't. You have to tell them on a piece of paper or on an online form, I want to opt into this 401k plan. I want you to take this percentage of every single check and put it in here per pay period. And then they look at the form that you filled out and follow exactly what you told them to do. So you have to pick your, what percentage of your salary you want to put in and what investments you want to buy with that money. So if you don't want your job's 401k, then just don't do nothing. Like don't sign up for it. Take your money from your paycheck and max out your Roth IRA every year instead. Mm. Me personally, I do both. If you can do both, do both. Like I max out my 401k and I max out my Roth IRA. And that's me being really aggressive because I don't want to be working until I'm 65. I want to retire a little bit early. So I'm being like really aggressive. Okay. Uh, is 401k actually worth it or should I invest elsewhere? Ooh, okay. So a 401k is not an investment. It's an investment account. So what you have to ask yourself is, is the investment that I'm going to buy inside my 401k, is that going to be worth it? So what are you going to buy? Are you buying stocks? Like, Are you going to log into your 401k account and buy all Amazon stock? Or are you going to log into your 401k account and buy the S&P 500? So the 500 largest leading companies in the U.S. Or are you going to do my favorite, the total stock market? You're just going to buy a fund that literally lets you buy all 4,000 companies that are on the American stock market exchanges like NASDAQ and, uh, S and, um, and New York Stock Exchange. You, the investments that you buy, that's what's going to indicate how much your money grows or doesn't grow. The 401k itself is just an account. But sometimes the 401ks does not have a good option for you inside of the plan. So you kind of got to do your little homework and you have to look at what is the option in my 401k. Because it's kind of like a restaurant. Like you can't just be like, is this restaurant and that restaurant worth it? Well, it depends what's on the menu. Like look at the menu that they offer. That 401k plan might be different from my 401k plan. Look at the menu of investments that they offer. Do they offer a total stock market fund or not? Because if they don't have that and that's what you want to buy, then don't use that plan because they don't have what you want. It's like saying, I really want a burger. So I'm going to go to the sushi restaurant and then you go and they say, we don't make burgers here. And you're like mad. Well, you should, you check the menu. You see that they don't have burgers. Then why are you coming here? Right? You checked your 401k plan. You saw that they don't have ETFs and index funds that allow you to buy the total stock market in the U S then why did you opt into that plan? It doesn't have what you want. Don't opt in, take your money, go to a Roth IRA or a regular brokerage account and buy the total stock market fund there because the 401k has limited options on a menu. So you got to look at that and know what options does your company's 401k plan have. If you like them, great. And if you don't, then you could opt out. Is CD comparable to a Roth or to a high yield savings account? High yield. So I would say there's four types of savings accounts at a bank, a regular bank, not an investment firm, not an investment bank, like the regular bank or credit union that, you know, you see when you walk around. 
So there's four types. People just think of a regular savings account, but there's four types. Traditional savings account is your regular, regular savings account that most people know don't pay you no jack nothing, like 0.01%. A cent. Honey, a it's, not, it's nothing. So <laughs> that's your traditional savings account that most people know. The second one is a certificate of deposit savings account. That's a CD. CD literally stands for certificate deposit, which means that you're locking the money up and you're saying, I'm not going to touch it for like 12 months, 18 months. But because I'm not going to touch it, y'all going to give me way more interest back than the traditional savings. But then there's another one called the high yield savings account. That's the third one that says, hey, we're going to give you more interest and you don't have to lock your money up like the CD. So we give you the best of both. We give you the traditional savings access to your money, but with higher interest rate like a CD, but you don't have to lock your money like a CD. So you get a little bit of the best of both. That's a high yield savings account, which I think everyone should have. It's a no brainer. It's a regular account to save your money. You can access it anytime you want. It's not locked. And it gives you way more interest than a regular. Come on. It's a no-brainer, right? High-yield savings, everyone should have. And then the last one is called a money market savings account, which has, like, special rules. They You can only touch it, like, maybe four or five times. If you take more than four withdrawals per month, then they hit you with a fee. So it's kind of like helping you save by limiting how much you can take out. And then they have, like, a slightly higher interest rate. So those are the four types. Those have nothing to do with the stock market. They have nothing to do with investments. They're just savings accounts for cash. When, we thought, when we're talking about like 401k, Roth IRA, now those are investment accounts where you can buy stocks, bonds, and funds. You can't buy stocks, bonds, and funds in your regular savings accounts at the bank. Okay. And this is our last question. Um, it was a, a favorite one of mine because it's something that I struggled with for a while at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is more a question about mindset. And this is coming from G in Washington, D.C., how should a person think about two truths in life that one needs to save for the future, but also that no tomorrow is ever promised how to strike that balance with everyday decisions? Mm. Oh, that's so hard. Um, I would ask yourself which one you personally care more about. Do you care more about being prepared for your future? Or do you care more about enjoying life right now? Cause you know that tomorrow you might not be here. Whichever one you care more about, that's the one you put a little bit more money towards, right? So if I care a lot about my future, but not as much as my present, well, then one-fifth of every single paycheck that I get is going to go towards my future savings, and two-fifths of every paycheck that I get is going to go towards my my present enjoyment, and then the other two-fifths left will go towards my needs, So you got to split up your money into only a certain number of pieces, right? Because there's only a few things you could prioritize in life. You can't have everything you want, but you can have, you know, certain things. So I would say if you care more about tomorrow than today, you really don't want to repeat mistakes that you've seen your parents and your grandparents making. You just really want to set yourself up for better tomorrow. Well, then maybe you should invest for your retirement two-fifths of your income and one-fifth of your income is for you to enjoy now. So you kind of got to figure out what is that balance. There has to be a balance, but you decide what it is. Is it a little bit more this way, a little less this way, or is it vice versa? So for me, I'm kind of like 50-50. Like I used to be hardcore for retirement. Now I'm hardcore for retirement, maxing out my 401k and my Roth IRA. But I also take that same amount of money and enjoy it each year. And that's a privilege that I can even do that because I've raised my income much higher than I've than I've ever had before. Back when I was making 40K a year, I couldn't do that. I couldn't max out a, a freaking 401k. Are you kidding me? That would have been half of my freaking income. So you can grow to a certain point where you plan, you plan for that. 
but really start thinking what are the percentages, right? One fifth is 20%, two fifths is 40%. So think about like what piece, what percentage am I willing to put aside? Um, but I would say everyone should at the very least two to 3% be going towards the future. And if you can do more, do 5%. If you can do more, 10, 20%, great. The, the higher, the better, because the more you're going to be prepared and the faster you'll be able to reach those goals. Um, I'll leave you with this. The biggest thing for how to know if I have enough, that's a big one, right? If I keep prioritizing now, 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 because I just feel like I'm never going to have enough for the future and it's impossible, well, sit down and calculate. Like there's a rule called the 25X rule, which is to take in your mind, like how much you think you're going to need every year to live comfortably in retirement. So let's say that's like 50K. Well, then multiply that by 25. And then you know that you're going to need $1.5 million to retire comfortably. Mm -hmm. So then if you start at 30 years old, investing $400 every month, $200 every single uh, check, every two weeks, or $100 every Friday, you'll be able to reach it before your 65th birthday. But if you wait until you're 45 years old to start putting 400 in the market every month, you probably won't hit it when you're 65. You need more time so that that money can grow. So do the 25X rule to see what's your number and then just start the plan towards it. And then, you know, have that balance. Like to me, I really don't think everybody should be one, all your money in one basket or the other. Because if you only plan for your future and you don't enjoy it today, man, you're going to be so damn resentful. You're going to be so resentful that you're just working all the time. You don't get to enjoy your money. Mm-hmm. And that's just you're going to hate your job. You're going to hate your life. You're going to have a bad relationship with money. And you're just not even going to be likely to even reach your goals. So I would say really think about what's the balance for yourself personally. And then, you know, if it's 50 50, well, then pay all your bills, take a little bit of money for fun and everything that's left, split it half and half. Half is for my savings for this year and the other half goes to my retirement. I personally am trying to retire fat fire and to know what yes. that is. You want, I'm trying to retire early and fat fire. So I got a lot of work to do. And to know what that means, y'all going to have to get this book. You can get it on Amazon. You yes. can get it on mindyourmoneybook.com. Also on mindyourmoneybook.com, there are hella free resources yes. for getting your money right. First, you got to get your mind right. But to get your money right, where where, where can we find you? Where can yes. the people go and like DM you and, and talk to you and just all follow places, your work? All the places. Um on Instagram, Miss Be Helpful. On TikTok, Miss Be Helpful. On YouTube, Miss Be Helpful. On Facebook, Miss Be Helpful. On LinkedIn, <laughs> everywhere. Just, if you're online, just look up Miss Be Helpful, M I S S B E. Helpful with one L, y'all. Come on, Grammarly, one L. So many people are like, I typed it in and look. And then they send me a screenshot and it's two L's at the end of helpful. I'm like, come on. <laughs> so, Miss Be Helpful, one L at the end, anywhere. And I do try so hard to spend at least a day each week going through my DMs to answer questions. And if I don't answer like in full, I'll be like, you know what? The answer to this question is in this article. Here's the link. Because at the end of the day, come on, y'all, we got to like get comfortable reading, looking at resources, watching videos, listening to podcasts to find answers. So, yeah, hit me up, Miss Be Helpful. If you have no other goals this year in 2024, I'm going to give you two, and it's going to be mind your business and mind your money. <laughs> Folks, you heard it here, here first. Thank you so much, Yaneli. This was so Thank much you. fun. This was so much fun. Yes. This was mad fun. Cheers. Cheers. Bye, y'all. <laughs>